Hello everyone, it's great to be back on air, and I look forward to another uh, History 101 podcast session with my audience, and if any of you are new out there, uh, feel free to listen in, and perhaps you might find that perfect uh, podcast site to do your uh, presentations, and if so, come to Anchor, it's free and the opportunities are limitless. Well, the last time I spoke with my audience, uh, we were focusing on uh, Pennsylvania from the book uh, Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortunes of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Well, where do we go now in terms of uh, colony? We're going to be talking about Delaware. And uh, Delaware has a lot of uh, unique history, not just history from its early years, but even history that leads up uh, to the time of the American Revolution. And as I've said before, I do find that it's important to uh, find out about um, early history of each of these uh, 13 colonies because the colonies just weren't established overnight and then everybody you know, was just doing their own thing, living happily ever after. Uh, that's not the way life works. Uh, even back in uh, the 16th, uh, 17th, and 18th century times. Uh, but what I do know about Delaware is this. Delaware, uh, besides uh, being surrounded uh, by bodies of water like the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, and uh, what's known as the Delmarva Peninsula, to the south and west of Delaware uh, lies Maryland. Why south and west? Well, if you think about it, to the south you have the Maryland Eastern Shore. And then to the west, you have um, what you call um, the uh, non-body of water area uh, of uh, Maryland, uh, most notably what is um, west of the the harbor and all. So that's why uh, Delaware border to the south of Delaware and as well as to the west is Maryland. But to the north of Delaware is uh, Pennsylvania, And what city in Pennsylvania is right near the border between Pennsylvania and Delaware? That's a very easy answer. As a matter of fact, it was was actually the previous um, nation's uh, capital seat until it was relocated to Washington, D.C. That answer is Philadelphia. And uh, Delaware, and to the east of Delaware, I should say, lies New Jersey. So it's safe to say that there are three states that really border Delaware. Now, even though Virginia doesn't border Delaware, there, is one, there are a couple of ways to get from Virginia to Delaware, but the most common way by vehicle in modern-day times is to go, say, Interstate 95 up 301, and before you know it, you're in Delaware. But there is a peninsula that occupies the nor- northeastern portion of uh, Delaware, as well as the south, but it's known as the Delmarva Peninsula. Remember, Delmarva, it's short for three states, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Now, true or false, which state is the smallest? Is it Delaware or Rhode Island? Well, it turns out that Delaware, Rhode Island is the smallest of the 50 states in modern-day um, uh, modern-day talk, but uh, even to this day, 
there are only three counties in the state of Delaware. That's the fewest of any state in this country. I find the names of the uh, three counties in Delaware to be very interesting. Uh, to the north, you have Newcastle, and to the south are Kent and Sussex. Well, it turns out there is a Sussex County in Virginia, and there is Sussex, England. There is even Kent, England. And what do you know? There is a county in Virginia not far from where I live called New Kent. Now, as for Newcastle, uh, there are various, uh, various uh, towns and cities in the United States, most notably on the East Coast, like in Pennsylvania. In the western part of Pennsylvania, there is uh, Newcastle. And it um, just goes to show you that uh, just how important those connections are to England. Think about it. Kent, England, Sussex, England. And what do you know? You have a Sussex County um, in Virginia as well as in Delaware. Now, uh, prior to the 16th century, Delaware is inhabited by various groups of Indians. But then again, it's safe to say that uh, before the Europeans arrive into the New World, no matter where uh, settlements lie in, in the New World, they are going to be inhabited by Indians. And what group of Indians are in Delaware? Well, it's more than just one. There's primarily two. To the north, you have the Lenape, and I have mentioned the, Le Le the Lenape at least uh, twice um, in Pennsylvania and in um, New York, or actually three times, I should say, because they even covered uh, New Jersey as well. So it seems like the Lenape have a very strong um, base um, in the um, middle colonies. And to the south, um, around uh, what's now present-day Kent and Sussex counties, you have the Nanticoke. As a matter of fact, I believe the Nanticoke might have even uh, inhabited a portion of uh, Maryland on the Maryland eastern shore. Well, who does, how does Delaware uh, get its name? Well, I've known this one for some time. As a matter of fact, um, you can read about it when visiting um, historic Jamestown in the historic Triangle of Virginia. The state of Delaware takes its name from a gentleman named Thomas West, he was referred to as the third baron of Delaware. He was referred to as Lord Delaware. He was an English nobleman, and he was also Virginia's first colonial governor. So there you have it, people. Uh, Delaware was named after this individual, Thomas West. He was the third baron, Lord Delaware. Now, um, who are the first uh, Europeans to come over, um, not just so much into the New World, but to explore Delaware, what we now know as present-day Delaware, the Dutch. And this was by around 1631. The Dutch were the first to settle in present-day Delaware, most notably in the Middle Region. And they established a trading post at a place known as Zwanendale, I know I mentioned that before uh, just recently, and for those of you who don't know where uh, Zwanendale would have been established, being in the Middle Region, it, is loc it was located in the present-day area known as Lewis, Delaware. That's spelled L-E-W-E-S. Some people would say Lewis. Now, the Dutch settlers, unfortunately, did not have a lot of um, success with this uh, settlement, 
As a matter of fact, a year later, they died in a dispute with um, area native tribes. I believe it's safe to say that the native tribes probably killed the settlers. And we have to remember people, um, there, Indians had known for some time that Europeans, even before the start of the 17th century, were trying to establish uh, settlements in the New World, most notably the Spanish in the late 16th century. And there were many um, issues uh, that, that the Indians um, worried about. And I think it's safe to say that if there was one thing that um, decimated Indian tribes, it was not warfare, it was disease. As I had mentioned before from an earlier podcast, Europeans came over to the New World in droves, searching for trade routes. While all of that is great, it's one thing to come in contact with an um, indigenous uh, species of people, but once you come into contact with them face-to-face, for all, for all we know, the Europeans were bringing disease. In other words, they were bringing um, diseases from one part of the world over to another, and the natives had no uh, way to protect themselves. So think about it. Smallpox is brought over, perhaps malaria, um, dysentery. And historians know that probably close to 90% over time in the years that followed, even after the 16th century, 16th and 17th centuries, that about 90% of all Indian tribes in not only just North America, but Central and South America ultimately succumbed to disease. But we go to 1638, and the Swedish arrive into Delaware, and they establish what is called New Sweden, a Swedish trading post uh, colony established at what is known as Fort Christina, located in present-day Wilmington. And in 1651, what do you know, 13 years later, 1651, the Dutch are able to regain the stronghold thanks to um, better leadership, most notably a man named Peter Stuyvesant, and they established a fort at present-day Newcastle. Interesting to note, there is a place in New York State, somewhere not far from the outskirts of the capital, being Albany, known as Stuyvesant, and it's safe to say that it would have been named under this, uh, after this man named P- Peter Stuyvesant. When do the English finally have their say in establishing their stronghold in Delaware, not until 1664. Between the late 17th century and the start of the 18th centuries, even after the time that the English take full control of Delaware, it turns out that Delaware and Pennsylvania are under one governor, and even William Penn of Pennsylvania himself um, oversaw um, that... um, what do you call it, arrangement. And it's safe to say, too, that Pennsylvania and Delaware were not the only two colonies joined by one government. It turns out that for in the early years of New York and New Jersey's existences, they both were tied under one government. It might be safe to say that that could have been a good thing because given that, say, Delaware and Pennsylvania border each other just like New York and New Jersey do, it, it might have prevented um, 
extreme conflicts between neighboring uh, colonies by placing them, them by placing them under one um, rule in terms of uh, being under one governor, it might have been in its day a good system of checks and balances. However, that didn't last forever, but for a brief period of time, neighboring states being placed under one governor probably did help um, avoid um, major conflicts between the neighboring um, colonies. Now, I, what I did find interesting to note was that in Delaware's early years as a colony, the colony itself was dependent on indentured uh, servitude, or what's known as indentured labor. And even Virginia was the same way, too. So, in other words, people from England came over and worked X number of years before earning their freedom. What I also found uh, interesting to note is that Delaware imported more slaves while the number of Im English immigrants decreased. And it turns out that the biggest cash crop in Delaware was tobacco for a long time. That I was kind of blown away by because when I think of tobacco, I think of that as being primarily in Virginia and um, the southern and central rolling hills of Maryland and the Carolinas, um, even into Georgia. I never thought that uh, tobacco would have been prevalent in Delaware, but then again, it probably would have been more prevalent in southern Delaware given that it borders uh, Maryland and the Maryland Eastern Shore, uh, most notably uh, being southern Maryland or, or close to it in the sense would have also had um, been a staple for tobacco. So learn something new there. Now, uh, Here's a good uh, question for us to think about. Did Delaware, or should I say, did the citizenry of Delaware, being its citizens, have a good relationship with the British Parliament? The answer is yes. It turns out that, um, that the majority of, Delaware, of, of native Delawareans, if that's how you want to call them, they showed, a, they showed very little enthusiasm for separating uh, from England or from the mother country. There were a lot of um, merchants who, perhaps it's safe to say, were uh, loyalists, but merchants who worked at the port of Wilmington had, had solid um, trading ties with the British. In other words, if the, if the British are dependent on your goods and you are very heavily dependent on theirs. And depending on how your loyalties are, and in the case with the people of Delaware, and knowing that they show little enthusiasm for wanting to separate from England, you're going to do everything there is to keep those ties with the mother country in place. And it is safe to say that even before 1776 comes about, not everybody is all gung-ho like Massachusetts is in declaring independence from England. Well, it does turn out, though, that while the majority of, um, of the people of Delaware want established relations to be maintained with Parliament, there are those who want a break from England. And yes, they would be in the minority, but 
it turns out, given that Delaware is a very small colony and you only have three counties, it is safe to say that Delaware did have its share of people who wanted independence from England. So how many uh, signers from Delaware signed the Declaration of Independence? I'll give you a hint. The number is between um, two and four. The answer is three. Well, who are these three men? Caesar Rodney, George Reed, Thomas McKean. Now, I know that when I first started uh, the podcast uh, series on this topic, um, the first colony I talked about was New Hampshire, and they only had three men who signed. I talked about two of them, and I thought about doing the same with Delaware, but then after reading, rereading a little bit more about the three men who signed from Delaware, I knew that I really had no other choice but to talk about all three because the reason why I had to do this is in part because all three, it's not so much that all three men are worth discussing about, it's because of how essential Delaware's role was in making sure that the Declaration of Independence got approved. And we're going to find out here... um, based on each uh, signer's story, why each of them played an important role, but why one of them, one of them, was the one whose vote got Delaware in favor of separating from England. And I should point this out, too, that um, just because uh, delegates or um, men who came to Philadelphia not only to represent their respective colonies in the First and Second Continental Congresses. They didn't come at their own leisure. They were uh, appointed by their um, by delegates uh, from their uh, respective colonial legislatures to come to Philadelphia. But they were also given specific sets of instructions on how to vote in terms of either voting in favor or not. So remember, these individuals who are in Philadelphia... While, yes, they may be entitled to their own opinions, and yes, they do have the authority, or not not so much the authority, they do have the power to either um, change their mind or or keep their uh, course in terms of how they choose to vote, they also... um, they also just can't vote at their own leisure. In other words, John Smith can't just say, well, I'm going to vote um, in support of uh, independence from England, and I really don't care how the constituents back at home feel. Okay, if you want to do that, that's fine, but if you come back home to your colony and they find out that you voted in favor, who's to say that you might even be alive? So for some of our signers, they left their home colony in a state of uncertainty, knowing that, okay, I may have said one thing about being a little hesitant about wanting to separate, but now if I do it, am I going to come home? And how do I face my Pete? How do I face the constituents? That's what all these men had to face. It was no picnic. That's why the book is titled Signing Their, Their Lives Away. You think about it. They knew what the stakes were. But as Ben Franklin said, we all must either come together we sh- or we will all have to hang separately. In other words, we can't leave anything on the table. We're either for separation or we're not. And if we're not for separation, then we will have to hang separately and explain to everyone else back at home why we did not uh, break. So, 
who's our uh, first signer that we're going to talk about. His name from Delaware, that is, we're going to talk about Thomas McKean. He was born in 1735. And interesting to note that he would have been born three years after uh, George Washington and two years after the last of the 13 colonies was um, established, being Georgia in 1733. Well, Thomas McKean established an impeccable resume for public service achievements. It, you know, here's some good examples. He was the only signer who was a governor of one state, being Delaware, while serving as chief justice of another, being Pennsylvania. Makes practical sense. Delaware and Pennsylvania bordering one another. He practiced law in both Delaware and New Jersey, another state bordering Delaware. And he held a variety of posts in his home, um, or in his uh, native state being Delaware, ranging um, from sheriff, militia captain, notary officer, a loan office trustee in one county, customs collector and judge in another, to being a deputy attorney general in another. He also became speaker of the lower house of the Delaware legislature. I think it's safe to say Thomas McKean didn't miss out on anything when it came to public service. He served nearly eight years in Congress. He was a hard-to-miss hard person. In other words, no matter where you went, you were always bound to run into him. He was that, basically he was ubiquitous. He was seen everywhere. He was both a humorous and a serious um, individual. In other words, he had a good sense of humor, but when, it, but when it came to being serious, it's probably safe to say you didn't want to mess around with him. He led the Pennsylvania Associators. This is a militia group that helped assist George Washington in defense of New York City, which was a very um, challenging time uh, for the Continental Army. Thomas McKean became governor of Delaware, and he became governor in an awkward way because the current governor, before his... Um, before his uh, call to duty in serving that post came about, was what we call a rebel governor. In other words, he hated the British. Well, what do you know? The British come into Delaware, and they capture this um, current governor. So Thomas McKean takes over. A very awkward way of having to uh, take over for someone else, but, but the reality is it did happen. Mr. McKean served as President of Congress under the Articles of Confederation in 1781, right as, the, um, right as the time is coming for when the British would surrender at Yorktown, Virginia. What was the one thing he wanted the people of, the, of, of all 13 colonies and eventually what would become the United States of America to remember him for? As a signer of the Declaration of Independence... Why did he profess this? Well, it turns out historians do believe that he was the very last man to sign the document. There is some speculation confirming that he did not sign until 1781, a full five years after everyone else. 
<laughs> it, it's best to say that Mr. McKean was too darn busy. Well, I, you know, we can all say that we're too darn busy, but couldn't we have had time prior to 1781 to have signed the document? Perhaps so. But on the other hand, maybe it was a good thing he held out and, and waited till 1781. Think about it. If he had signed, then the British might have captured him. We know that the British did not capture any of the signers who signed the document, but it is safe to say that many of them probably did live with the fear knowing that the British could have hunted them down at any given time, depending on where the warfare was being conducted. And given that Delaware borders Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania saw more uh, warfare uh, action in terms of Revolutionary War combat than Delaware did. And given that Philadelphia, being the capital, was right nearby, was also of concern, and yes, the British did overtake the capital for a period of time. So I can see why it would have been um, hesitant for some to not just profess that, oh, I signed the document, but maybe to sign it right away knowing that they were putting their lives at stake. Well, Mr. McKean did um, write letters in defense in later years, proving that his name was, in fact, on the document. He uh, did serve three terms as Pennsylvania's governor, and he had some interesting quirks about, being, about his being governor. He demanded perfection. He appointed friends and relatives to posts, censured opponents to antagonizing critics. So in other words, if you didn't go along with his agenda, you were subjected to merciless criticism, to being censured, ostracized. It was basically his way of saying this, it's my way or the doorway. Is that good? Sometimes yes, other times no. But that's how he governed, and if he got things done, then perhaps more power to him. He dies in 1817 as a fairly wealthy man, and he is buried in Philadelphia. And it is also safe to say that he, assumed, that he signed the document, being the Declaration of Independence, between 1777 and 1781. But he is referred to as the signer who waited five years to sign. Our next uh, signer we'll be talking about is um, a Mr. George Reed. He was born in 1733, the same year that the last of the 13 colonies was established, being Georgia. What a coincidence that is. Well, what is Mr. Reed like as a person? Well, he is a moralist. He was a man of reason, behaved like many supporters behind separating from England. Okay, well, that should tell us right away that he was opposed to British taxes, most notably taxation without representation from the infamous Stamp Act. He also supported what's called non-importation agreements. In other words, he supported boycotting the boycott of British goods coming into America. Import 
for those of you who need who need to know uh, basic 101 terminology, import means goods coming into, say, colonial America. Export meaning you're shipping them out, sending them to, like, England, for example. So a non-importation agreement is a boycott of all British goods coming in. In other words, let's reduce our dependency on England and start making goods here in colonial America. Mr. Reed also helped raise money for Bostonians who were impacted by that infamous uh, British Port Act of 1774. Why is the British Port Act of 1774 so um, important to know? Well, the Port of Boston, Massachusetts, was closed. Parliament took the Port of Boston, in other words, it pretty much uh, closed the, the port for good and relocated all um, what he called imports coming into colonial America from Massachusetts into Salem, which is just north of Boston. So many of our um, fellow brethren in other colonies um, by this time are showing um, compassion and sympathy for the people of Boston and are raising money for Bostonians so that they will not uh, be suffering long term. And so Mr. Reed did his part by raising money to um, X amount of money to help uh, the people of Boston uh, during that uh, trying time. He was committed, he basically is referred to or known as someone who is committed to voting his conscience, but here's a, here's a double-edged sword right here. His conscience was being that of, um, in favor of independence. However, he was not for separation right away. Well, how can you say one thing and then do the opposite? Well, he goes to Congress in 1774, and he becomes good friends with a fellow Pennsylvanian, none other than Mr. John Dickinson, who was probably considered to be the most outspoken critic of separation from England. Mr. Dickinson strongly opposed independence. He basically said that independence itself was a premature step. How does this uh, impact Mr. Reed? Well, I'm sure if, if many people knew about uh, Mr. Reed and Mr. Dickinson being friends, some would say they would have been butt buddies, but it turns out they necessarily weren't 100% butt buddies. It does turn out that Mr. Reed... On um, July 2nd, which is the day that Congress, the Continental Congress, approved of the motion of, um, of this independence from England, Delaware is one of um, four colonies that, and I'll say this again, but I'm going to say it right now at the moment, Delaware is one of four colonies that presents obstacles to unanimity. And what does unanimity mean? Agreement. In this case, agreement on independence. The other three colonies that are at a stalemate are New York and uh, South Carolina and uh, Pennsylvania. So this is what this is a time known as that's going to be known as make or break. And it's not for three or four weeks. It's a matter of a few days, or not just a few days. Really, less than say two days. Well, here's 
what, here's how it goes for Mr. Reed. He votes against independence on July 2nd. However, he still signs the document. He deserves to be known as a flip-flopper. He votes one way. He votes one way, but by doing so, he's going along with the crowd. Is that a good thing? I would have to say in this case, yes. Well, what else is George Reed um, known for having done? He raised money for supplies and troops to taking up arms in the militia. And he was not the only person out there raising money for, um, for troops and supplies. Uh, a handful of other signers were doing the same thing. Um, he becomes governor in 1777 when the existing governor, being John McKinley, is taken prisoner. So it's safe to say that Delaware is having its share of problems in terms of protecting their governors. Their governors are becoming uh, the number one targets. Well, Mr. Reed uh, would go on to participate in the Federal Con Convention of 1787 by um, helping draft the United States Constitution, and he is only one of six people who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He is a very, very strong Federalist. And as our country evolves, as a result with the U.S. Constitution, we have two political parties, the first two of our young republic's existence being Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And here's some 101 history we should cover right here. What are some uh, key 101 differences between Federalists and Anti-Federalists? Federal Federalists favor a strong, powerful central government. In other words, they um, feel that the government must um, be the, the, the head of state. In other words, state laws can't override federal laws. Uh, there has to be a proper system of checks and balances in play that um, allow the federal government to function properly, but also do not allow the states to take control to where the federal government almost becomes like the equivalent of a stepchild. So in other words, like take Alexander Hamilton. He's a federalist. He believes there should be the equivalent of a modern-day federal reserve system. Whereas Thomas Jefferson, being an anti-federalist, he feels that a federal reserve system would give too much power, not only to the government, but it would give too much power to those who are um, too much of a, what we call wealthy and elite status. Federal, uh, and of course, Alexander Hamilton believed that the wealthy and the well-educated should be running the government. That doesn't necessarily mean that just because I go to Harvard, I should be involved in the government. What he was referring to is that if you were well-educated in a certain matter or, or a certain um, subject like finances, that you should have a major say in the financial affairs of your country's government. But if you have no knowledge on finances or how a banking system itself works, then why should you be sent to Congress? In other words, he believed that people who were very well knowledgeable on an array of subjects were the ones that should be representing the people below them in government. Of course, you take Thomas Jefferson, an anti-federalist. He believes that the power 
within the government lies in the hands of farmers. In other words, the government should be more of a, an agrarian uh, structure, whereas Hamilton, it was more mercantile. So, um, as for George Reed, yes, he is a um, he is a strong Federalist and would have believed in a very strong, powerful central government. And his presence helped Delaware become the first state to ratify the United States Constitution. So, therefore, what is Delaware's um, motto or phrase saying? The first state. Why is that so? Because it became the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. He was the only, and, and he dies in 1798 at age 65. And he is still remembered, while, while yes, he signed the Declaration of Independence, he is also still remembered as the only signer who voted against it. And here's how to best um, explain this. It's one thing to vote for independence. It's, it's one thing to talk about, in this case, wanting to separate from England. It's another thing to go about taking on the world's most powerful empire out in open battlefields, which, when facing the world's most powerful empire without no real army, that's where an array of issues comes about left and right. So you can talk all you want about wanting to be independent, but if you don't have the right uh, structure that can go about um, taking on the world's mightiest empire at this time, you are put at a real disadvantage. But in the end, the Continental Army did prevail through thick and thin, through the best, through, what do you call it, through good moments and not so good moments. We did defeat the world's mightiest empire. So I think it is safe to say that declaring independence from England was one thing, but by separating and signing this document, not just signing the document, but by going head to toe out in open battlefields, it says it all right there. And of course, Lord, Lord uh, Charles Cornwallis from England had said, I don't know how true it is, but from the movie, The Patriot, at the very end of that movie, when the surrender at Yorktown takes place, he says, how could this all happen? Losing to peasants with pitchforks. All has changed, and it already has. Well, the British Army may have been fighting uh, far against farmers, or should I say those who who probably didn't know anything better than to use a pitchfork. But they were not to be underestimated. They were common people. They were smart people. They knew how to go about fighting in war. It all just boiled down to having the right leaders in play, most notably like George Washington, Marquis de Lafayette, Henry Knox, um, to Nathaniel Green, to Francis Marion, the list can go on and on, but the bottom line is, is that it all comes down to that leadership, being in the right place at the right time. And if it weren't for the, the men whose names I just mentioned, especially uh, George Washington, there might not be a Continental Army. There may not have been victories. There may not even be a United States of America. So, yes, you can vote for independence, 
but it's all about having the right people in play to take on the world's most powerful empire. So interesting to note here before we get to our last signer, and our last signer is going to be the one who, um, I'll just tell you right now, saves the day for Delaware. Leading up to his presence, Delaware is in a deadlock. Thomas McKean has, is in favor. George Reed, while yes, he has flip-flopped, he still is against independence. So we're going to stay at July 2nd. And our final signer we're going to talk about is none other than Mr. Caesar Rodney. What do we know about Caesar Rodney? He was born in 1728. He is the oldest son of a planter, lived on an estate known as Byfield, an 800-acre plantation near Dover. By the time he reaches the age of 27, we're looking at about the year 1755, and what year? And, and we're just about ready to embark on the French and Indian War. By the time he is around the age of 27, he holds numerous different jobs, like that of being a sheriff, an assemblyman, an assembly speaker, um, to justice of the peace, to brigadier general in um, in the Delaware um, militia. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Delaware was one of four colonies that presented obstacles to unanimity, full agreement on independence, the other three being South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and New York. Well, Mr. Rodney has a lot going against him right now in 1776. He's already got one issue to deal with, and that is loyalist uprisings in Delaware. And as I said earlier, there are a lot of people in Delaware who are very, very loyal to the crown and will do everything in their power to stay that way. So he's got uprisings in Delaware, and that could also mean that his life could be at stake if not careful. Well, prior to 1776... Some years earlier, maybe about eight or ten years previous, Mr. Rodney had a surgical procedure done that removed a cancerous lesion that had gone from his nose to the left side of his face. While the surgery was a success, the scars were still present, and because of this, he was in poor health and not just in poor health because of that matter, but he was also ha dealing um, with asthma bouts. Now, I don't know how anybody would have survived surgery in the 18th century. My father says it very well from time to time. He'll say this, you know, Kirk, it's one thing to have been alive in the 18th century, but if we got sick, we really were up a creek because there was no guarantee that even for the simplest um, medical um, comp medical um, matter affecting us, there would have been no guarantee that we might have survived. Think about it. There's no anesthetics to reduce numbness, uh, or not just with a tooth removal. There, there are no modern-day anesthetics from surgery. I mean, you are alive watching yourself being dissected. Not a pleasant thought, but the medical profession didn't know any better back then. They were just doing everything there was to try to save your life. 
thank heavens Mr. Rodney's life was, was saved in this matter. So therefore, he's not in Philadelphia on July 1st, which is the vote on the Lee resolution. And as I mentioned a moment ago, at this time he is dealing with loyalist uprisings in Delaware. And to make matters more difficult, as mentioned earlier, the Delaware delegates are deadlocked. Thomas McKean is in favor of independence. George Reed is not. But yet he flip-flops. So, how does Mr. Rodney save the day? Thomas McKean dispatches a messenger and says to the messenger that, hey, you must get to Mr. Rodney's home right away. Yes, Tell him that, you know, in other words, hey, if they're uprising, so be it. But you've got to get to Philadelphia immediately. Well, despite an ill health, Caesar Rodney himself does the unthinkable. He rides 80 miles in one night from his home in Delaware to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, realize this, people. There's no U.S. 301. There's no Interstate 95 Uh, There are no major highways for him (laughs) to get from point A to point B. I don't know how many times he even stopped along the way. I would assume, though, that he would have had to have switched horses, because I don't know of a horse in 1776 that would have been able to have covered 80 miles in one night. I think it is safe to say, though, that Mr. Rodney probably did stop at some point along the way and could have switched out horses. But that's a debate that that would still be left out in the open. The bottom line is he, um, he saves the day. He covers 80 miles in one night. He arrives into Philadelphia, and I can't imagine how exhausted he is, but he does arrive, and he votes in favor of... Uh, separation from England. Two to one is the outcome in favor of independence, and he saves the day. Well, besides saving the day, what are his um, primary objectives that he focuses on? They range from military affairs to recruiting uh, local troops supporting General George Washington during the New Jersey Winter Campaign of 1776. Okay, remember this, people, the New Jersey Campaign of 1776. That, that is the time, the trying time that's going to either make or break the fate of not just the Continental Army, but the cause for independence. In other words, the cause for independence is just a one stroke away from being um, extinguished altogether. And as I talked about from New Jersey... Um, how the um, Battle of Trenton is what saves um, the Continental Army and restored morale to the cause. So even in the aftermath of that battle, Mr. Rodney commands the post at Trenton after their victory. In other words, somebody's got to stay behind to make sure that there's not going to be another uprising amongst um, the British. He becomes the major general of the Delaware militia in 1777. He served as acting or full governor from 1778 to 1781, but even during this time, his health is still uh, very poor, and and it's that bad off to where legislative assembly meetings are held at his home. 
Now talk about a sacrifice right there. I mean, government's still got to function, even in um, in the colonies. It, it can't all be confined to, uh, say, Philadelphia or Annapolis. But of course, by 1781, the government has moved to Annapolis. Mr. Rodney, though, um, he did live to see uh, the Treaty of Paris uh, take place in 1783, which uh, ended all hostilities in the American Revolution. He dies a year later, though, in 1784 at the age of 56. It turns out that um, Mr. Rodney, or should I say Caesar Rodney, was only, he was one of two signers who were lifelong bachelors. What a uh, unique, uh, distinctive honor that is, um, knowing how much he contributed to his state or his colony, but yet never married. He is referred to as Delaware's famous midnight rider. And how appropriate, on the Delaware State Quarter, there is a picture of a gentleman on a horse, riding away, or in this case, galloping away, and it's none other than Mr. Caesar Rodney. It all makes sense. It's one thing for someone to be on a horse, but they have to be. Um, but it has to be justifiable, and it's justifiable here because he is en route to Philadelphia to save the day on a midnight ride, eighty miles, making history. Had it not been for Mr. Caesar Rodney, Delaware would not have been able to have joined with the rest of the colonies on July 4th and officially declaring independence. Now, of course, New York held out, and but officially agreed on July 9th when George Washington read the Declaration of Independence to the Army and to um, bystanders at Bowling Green Park. But if it hadn't been for Mr. Caesar Rodney, Delaware would not have been unified and it would have left the other colonies in a limbo. It just so turns out that South Carolina and Pennsylvania were able to um, come together as in their respective um, delegations to join the rest of uh, the other colonies. These were trying times, and it did involve individual acts of um, individual courageous acts by certain individuals that came together to save not just the cause for independence, but to save their colonies. Thank heavens there was Mr. Caesar Rodney. Knowing that he wasn't feeling well, he still laid it on the line and came to Philadelphia when it mattered most. Well, people, uh, that is all for today, and um, Delaware uh, was very well worth uh, discussing. If any of you out there who are from Delaware and listened, wonderful, because you probably learned a lot of things that you might not have known. Even I myself did when I read this book last year, and having reread about the three gentlemen we talked about today made me uh, be reminded of what sacrifices they made. Uh, take care for now, and I'll look forward to another um, podcast session here soon. Later.